On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the winner of this year's Templeton Prize, Dr. Jane Goodall, whose discoveries changed our understanding of humanity's role in an interconnected world at templeton.org. Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, has been a sensation of 2020 and beyond. And now she's launched a new podcast titled with words of hers that have become a cultural force. We can do hard things. Meanwhile, her wife, the soccer icon Abby Wambach, has her own best-selling books and is hosting a new TV show, Abby's Places, on ESPN+. I had a conversation with the two of them before they were quite so much in the public eye together, and it's a window into the passions that brought them here. Abby first became a hero to many as an Olympic gold medalist and World Cup champion. Glennon first entered the American imagination as a Christian mommy blogger, but she and her online community, Momastery, evolved into a community of giving and activism with a nonprofit called Together Rising. What follows is a conversation about courage that is both serious and playful as it turns up in their lives apart and together, from addiction to social activism to blended family parenting. I mean, Glennon and I talk a lot about this notion of despair. Sometimes she says it to our 10-year-old who has fallen down in a soccer game. Um, She'll say, no time for despair. (laughs) And I look at her, I'm like, what kind of language are you using? No, you said this is a soccer game, not a poetry reading. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to be nice about it. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Glennon Doyle has written several best-selling books before Untamed, including Love Warrior. Abby's latest best-selling book, Wolf Pack, emerged from the 2018 commencement speech she gave at Barnard College, which we discuss in this show. We all sat together in Seattle at the 2018 Summit of Women Moving Millions, a consortium of women testing the meaning and boundaries of philanthropy. And courage was the theme of the day. So, Glennon, um, let me just say one thing. We're going to kind of leap forward in this conversation and not go over a lot of the stories that, for both of you, that are where a lot of interviews with you happen because you both have such fascinating stories. Um, you know, like my teenage daughter would say, it's so epic, right? You both have epic stories. Um, but we, I want to kind of dr- jump into the meat. And I just want to say, if you want to hear these two stories, they've written gorgeous books. But sometimes the way people will describe your body of work or, or kind of your career. Also, you started out as a blogger. Mm-hmm. Um, you still are a blogger. Mm-hmm. Some people will say you're um, uh, you know, a master of the tell-all form. Mm. And really, that's many forms. Mm-hmm. And it ranges from the serious to the superficial. Mm-hmm. So here's where we're going to compress a lot of epic history into it. Mother's Day 2002, you find yourself pregnant, and that is just this huge turning point, mm-hmm. because you decide to have the baby. Mm-hmm. And you actually marry the father, who you didn't really know very well mm-hmm. at all. And I was so struck by this, um, that AA, you you decided you had to get into recovery, Mm -hmm. and it was such a revelation, and you wrote somewhere that you thought to yourself, why is it that we can only be this honest in little dark basements of churches one hour a week? (laughs) 
what if we could actually be fully human and honest with each other in real life? So you started getting up, and again, this is in, in the... I'm telling your story, but just to get us to other places. Getting up early and writing in that voice that spoke at AA meetings. Mm -hmm. And um, one day, you logged onto Facebook, which was kind of new, and noticed that your friends were writing lists called 25 Things About Me, mm -hmm. and you contributed your own. And you <sighs> definitely add into the genre. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they were, they, I don't know if you remember, but a decade ago, maybe they were doing this list of 25 things about yourself. And I had been, um, you know, I was freshly sober. I was just dripping with babies. I think I had three under the age of five at that point. And um, really felt like a lot of women do at that time, pretty isolated and lonely, overwhelmed and underwhelmed at the same time. You know, everything was like too much and not enough. And, um, and, I logged on. I didn't read anyone else's lists. I just thought, saw people are writing lists about themselves, right? So I wrote my list and posted it and walked away and came back to my computer and there were like 40 emails in my okay, inbox. Okay, but can I read number five? Oh, God. I am a recovering alcoholic and bulimic, bulimic, seven years sober. Sometimes I miss excessive booze and food. In the same indescribable way, you can miss someone who abused you and repeatedly left you for dead. Truth. <laughs> Except that my friend Lisa's number six was, my favorite snack food is hummus. You know? <laughs> so I was like, crap, we're not doing that here. <laughs> right? But that was also the moment when I got brave and I wanted to die. But then when I got brave enough started to start reading those emails and every single one of them was just a different version of, oh my God, me too. Me too, me too. And I thought, and they were from people I'd known my whole life. Right? But we'd never really known each other because we'd been too busy pretending that everything was so perfect and shiny. And, you know, because for some reason, if we admit or talk to each other about life and relationships and work and all of this being hard, then it seems like some kind of admission of failure, which is so ridiculous. Because life and relationships and faith and work and all these are hardest for the people who are doing them right, right? Who are showing up and taking big risks and falling and trying again. So, um, you know, sometimes it feels like we're keeping the things from each other that are the very things that are so heavy that we're supposed to be carrying them with each other. Right? So, I mean, when people say tell-all, yeah. all that means to me is I just don't have any shame. You know, because what I learned about my recovery through um, getting so sober is that it's not at all the pain of life or the difficulty of life. I still find life extremely difficult. But it's not that that takes us out of the game. Right? It's the shame about the difficulty that takes us out of the game. So I think probably what they mean is that I write about things that maybe other people don't write about all the time, but that's because it's a spiritual practice for me. The second I start to feel anything that has a hint of shame into, in it, I always think of that Maya Angelou quote that's, you know, I am human, so nothing human can be foreign to me. Right? I get it out. It's like scary and inside and dark, but once I get it out and get light on it, it just shrinks. It's not so scary anymore. A bunch of people say me too, and I'm like, oh, right, I'm not bad. I'm just human, and we get on with it. So, yeah, I've just tried to turn my entire life into one giant AA meeting. Right, right. <laughs> 
actually just want to read this before we move on, and because Abby, your story also has different contours of this struggle to own the contradictions, also in your case, between the fantasy other people have of one's life and the reality of a life. And but Glennon, you know, you, I think would it would it be right to say monastery, which is your is that how you say it? Monastery. That's, how, that's like a how monastery. I always said it. I know. Mm-hmm. And then I hear people saying. Mana- ma- mastery. Oh, that's my and favorite. And I think they're not getting it. No. They're not getting Okay, mastery. Well, on the um, Today Show, they said, this is mom mastery. Right, She's mastering right, the mom, right. which is like the opposite of everything I, I stand for, right? I know. I was like, no. I, that's what I just, I'm I, just I was yeah. so sure. So um, I think, was it in 2011, the Don't Carpe Diem post that mm. kind of had four million shares and, mm-hmm. and really t- took off in a new way? And I just want to read this briefly because it's just very beautiful and a lot of us have been here. Every evening, Craig walks through the door, that was your husband at the time, smiles hopefully and says, how was your day? This question is like a spotlight pointed directly at the chasm between his experience of a day and my experience of a day. How was my day? I look down at my spaghetti-stained pajama top, unwashed hair, and gorgeous baby on my hip, and I want to say, how was my day? It was a lifetime. It was the best of times and the worst of times. (laughs) I was both lonely and never alone. I was simultaneously bored out of my skull and completely overwhelmed. I was saturated with touch, desperate to get the baby off of me, and the second I put her down, I yearned to smell her sweet skin again. This day required more than I'm physically and emotionally capable of while requiring nothing from my brain. I had thoughts today, ideas, real things to say, and no one to hear them. Um, Everyone's like, I can't imagine that she's divorced now. That must have been... (laughs) Must have been lovely to live with. So, Abby, you were, I mean, you're a two-time Olympic gold medalist, a women's World Cup champion, FIFA World Player of the Year, on Time's list of 100 Most Influential People, praised by President Obama at the White House. Um, you, your book that you published, when did you publish that? Two, in the last 2016. Year, 2016. It's called Forward. And, uh, and there's a line in there where you're describing just like two weeks after your retirement, which was just the height of being celebrated. And you have a sentence in there. You're speaking to yourself. You are barely brave enough to leave your hotel room. Yep. You know, <clears throat> when you spend over a decade in, in a spotlight in one way or another. Um, our national team gained popularity in uh, 1999 when our team won the World Cup and Brandi Chastain ripped off her jersey. I wasn't on the team then, but I got there a few, a few years later, uh, won a couple Olympic gold medals, and then finished off my career um, winning the, the World Cup in 2015, and I retired a few months later. And so... You have certain levels, you know, I had certain levels inside of me that I could go and train and, and um, I can compartmentalize the fame. You know, I always said that we had like a perfect amount of fame on the women's national team because it was not like a celebrity where people were following us with cameras. Um, we were revered and respected. And the downside is we, we didn't get paid enough to deal with it. You know, I'd be like, you know, 
we could have gotten paid more, but then maybe if we gotten paid more, we would have been too famous. Um, but I just remember that time being so exhausted. Uh, a couple weeks after my retirement, I was going on kind of a media tour uh, after the whole thing. And I just felt like for once in my life, and I was really struggling at the time, I was like really deep into my own addiction and I was really living a hidden life behind that hotel room door because I was traveling all the time. And uh, I just remember feeling like if people only knew that actually I am terrified to walk outside of this hotel room and somehow I was able to do it, somehow I was able to survive. My agent still can't believe that the amount of um, traveling I had to do during that time that I was able to stand up and knowing how I was feeling after I turned in the manuscript of this book, he was like, I didn't know you were feeling any mm. of this stuff, you know? And, and you're out there making presentations and being received as a role model and a mentor, right? Yeah, and, a, and hero. a hero. And a hero, right? yeah. And so that's, for me, there were, that's what the, the, the irony was, is I just was internally feeling so scared and lost. Um, you know, when you have created this identity, I had this identity of myself as a soccer player, and now this identity was being completely shifted, and I didn't know what the hell to do. And I found myself on a, on a stage um, months after my retirement next to Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning. They were giving me this Icon Award. Um, was and that I, ESPN, right? Yeah, 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 for the ESPYs, and I was so happy to be there and grateful and everything, and, and as like we turned and walked off stage, I kind of looked at both of those guys and I thought, wow, all three of us are walking into very different retirements. Yeah. And at that point... Well, and to be clear, like, and one of the ways you describe that is that they, they were walking away with fortunes. Of course. And you, your life of hustling was just beginning. Yeah, and I think that that, for me, that's when the rage started to, like, come to the surface. And, I, yeah, Courage? Courage. It's always got rage in it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being with Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach. And in the book you wrote, you, um, the, the chapters are all ways people had seen you, right? Mm -hmm. And categories you'd Labels, sometimes yeah. walked into willingly, and, and sometimes that had been an armor, right? So... Um, it was everything from, you know, or how you'd seen yourself. It would, you know, be fraud, tomboy, rebel, teammate, lesbian, manic, depressive, captain, leader, romantic, hero, addict, failure. And then the last chapter is human. Mm. Um, somewhere you said I, you had created yourself. All these categories that were both generated from you and generated externally helped create you but shut you off from becoming human, fully human. Glennon has said this a lot. Um, you know, we're all kind of like Russian nesting dolls. And as we get older, we kind of keep putting on all of these t costumes. And that's what I thought for me growing up. That's what I thought I had to do to mature, to age, to get wisdom, is to put on all these different costumes and see which one fit. And I think that now having gone through a lot of my life, and granted I'm still fairly young at 38, but um, I realize that the more you can actually take 
those costumes off and get down to that little, small, immobile Russian nesting doll, that is like who you are, your true, true self. That is like the humanity of all of us. And we all are in there. I, this is very random, but I just want to share it because when I was reading, I was thinking, yeah, he ended with human, which seems like the simplest, most elemental thing of all, but is really the work of a lifetime. Right? I was thinking about there's this, you know, when I studied theology, Paul Tillich wrote The Courage to Be, and he's called an existentialist theologian. And, and I read it when I was older, because I was, I was emphasized when I thought of that to be, that being. But the courage, the book is actually about how the courage it takes, right? The courage mm-hmm. is the work. Mm. So there's your little theology for today. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, big life turning. I kept thinking of what's the language around inflection point, but really more like earthquake, I think, where your stories converge. And Glennon, you left a marriage you had just written a book about repairing yeah it's been a doozy you guys (laughs) so the two of you met and married and here's me rushing through epic history again and are now co-parenting your three children together and actually co-parenting together with their father in a really modern family I mean, we don't, like, live in the same house. It's not that You don't modern. live in the same house, no. <laughs> but you're working together. Right, yes. Um, also, there's really been an evolution of momastery. Mm-hmm. Now, which came first, the Compassion Collective or the Love Flash Mobs? Huh. Well, the Love Flash Mobs. Okay. Yeah, so that started a long time ago. And the Compassion Collective is really just a a group of, of writers who right. are my friends who joined together to help the with the love with our mobs. nonprofit. So talk about what that is and mm-hmm. how yeah how that developed. Well, I mean, I would say when I, I became a writer and an artist, and I saw my job as you know, I think a writer's just her job is to just pay close attention, you know, just look closely at people. And I think when you look closely at people, you end up loving them. You know, that's just what happens over and over again. So I fell in love with this little community that I was. Um, speaking to and hearing from every day online. And the way it started is one day I was um, feeling really grateful. And I, at the time I was using my feelings as energies. I think this is something my therapist had suggested. (laughs) And um, I was feeling all this gratitude. I said, I'm going to do something with this gratitude. So I said, the first email that I open up, if it's a request, I'm going to grant that request because people were always asking me for things. So I opened my email, and it was a letter, a beautiful letter from this woman who, run, uh, who ran a um, home for teenage um, homeless mothers in Pennsylvania. And she said, she was, just, she was just sharing her heart. She said, this little girl, 14-year-old girl came to our home last night holding a baby, and I had to turn her away because we didn't have the funding for her, and she was heartbroken. So I said, oh, my God, that's it. So I actually called this woman in the email and said, I want to pay for that um, girl to come into your home. What do you need? And she said, we need (laughs) $80,000. And I said, well, then we need another plan. (laughs) That's going to be a hard credit card charge to hide from my husband. So, um, so, so I was despondent because I knew I was supposed to do this. Like this was in the cards. And, um, that's when I remembered I had this community of women online who would feel the exact same way as I did about the situation and that my job was to be a writer right? My job was not to fix everything, but to tell the story 
of this girl, right? Because I always thought, you know, that the most revolutionary thing we can do is just introduce people to each other. So I called the, the, the woman back and we stayed up like all night writing this beautiful essay with pictures and all the things. And I said, we're going to start something this, tomorrow I'm going to post this story online and we're going to call it a, a love flash mob because at the time I was obsessed with flash mobs. Do you guys remember those amazing, yeah, you remember the one that Oprah did with the, right. Yeah. So that one has yeah. like 79 million views and I am 78 million of those views. <laughs> Because it's just so gorgeous. You know, it's like the, 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 a metaphor for life. It's like we all just start walking around like zombies disconnected from each other. And then suddenly somebody, some fool starts dancing. And then some other fool like starts dancing too and knows the, the, the moves. It's almost like there's some kind of choreography that we all know. And then everybody's dancing. So the beauty of the Love Flash Mob was I'm going to open up the giving, but nobody's allowed to give more than $25. Because the point was not just to raise the money, but the point was to create a community of givers, right? And I had to fix, what was the problem? We know we have the feeling, we wanna help, but what happens between that feeling and just forget it, right? And what happens, I think, in that space is, is, is uh, confusion. How much should I give? Will it matter? Who do I have to check with? You know, all the, oh, I'll do it later. And so I needed to make it so that, just to smush that time together so that people didn't drop off, and also to make somebody for whom $25 is a big deal feel as invested and as important as somebody for whom that was nothing, right? So fast forward seven hours later, we had like $130,000, right? So, and that was just the first day. So now, years later, I mean, the Compassion Collective, this is a grassroots movement. Love flash mobs happen every once in a while. I think we're just about to hit $15 million, and our average donation is $31. Um, so... You know, my journey has been, you know, from artist to, I guess what you'd say, philanthropy, right? This idea that we love people, we want to help people. And then somewhere in my journey, my team and I were spending just day and night just helping, you know, emails and helping and helping and pulling people, pulling people. We'd sit down every once in a while, we'd say, what is going on? Like, I believe that people are doing the best they can. Why are all these people suffering? Right? All these people who are working their butts off to put food on the table for their family and they can't make ends meet, what's going on? One day I read this quote that said, um, you can only pull people out of the river for so long until you have to look upriver to find out who's pushing them in. Right? So that is when I added activist to my resume, right? Philanthropy is one thing, and pulling people out of the water is one thing. But at some point, we have to ask ourselves, what are the institutions and powers that are causing all of these children to not be able to have their heat turned on? What are the institutions that are causing all of these dads to be um, pulled out uh, to jail for the most minor infractions, right? What are the institutions and powers that be that are causing so many freaking people to be addicted to opioids, mm -hmm. right? We have to go up river. We're gonna do and both all the time, right? So I just wanna spend the rest of my life pulling people out of the river and also just creating living hell for the people that are pushing them <laughs> in. And what I also wanna just pick up on, just moving back a little bit, is, um, what you're doing by saying you can only give $25 is also helping people not feel paralyzed. 
there's because I remember years ago I interviewed Joan Halifax, a wonderful Buddhist teacher, and she talked about how she didn't think, you know, she didn't like this language of compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's certainly a, tr- I mean, we know we all know what she's talking about. Um, but she said she said she said, she thought there's such a thing as pathological empathy. Because in fact, we get surrounded and inundated and bombarded by images that break our hearts. So many of us, I think. And it's not that we don't care. It's that, we, that we're overwhelmed by how much we care and we have no idea what we can do to make it better. So that's also what you're describing. And then, and then okay, so... But, but we do need a different kind of courage that we don't possess and that our public life doesn't nourish right now to hold that question and walk with it. Mm-hmm. And to turn heartbreak into action. Yeah. Um, you've also gotten involved, and the Compassion Collective got involved in the children being separated from their families at the border. And you said, but these, this is so powerful, issues like refugee care can seem so overwhelming. You, you were saying this to your people, which is a million people or so. But we're going to do this thing that I learned when I first got sober. We're just going to do the next right thing together. And that's what we're not stopping to just say to ourselves and say to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this this idea of compassion fatigue or, or despair, you know, what I really notice is that the people who complain about despair so much are the people who aren't doing anything. Because... What I feel is brokenhearted a lot of the time, but when I do a little thing, when I just do something, there's something else that happens. It's not despair. I don't know. It's a little bit of hope. Um, It's that idea of like, we cannot keep the fact that we can't do everything to keep us from doing something. Mm -hmm. You know, you do that little thing and then you feel more awake and alive and connected. Um, You know, so many people at the time were saying, you know, this the beautiful Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, have you guys seen the documentary? Oh my god. Yeah, I started watching it on the plane. Oh, it's god. not a good thing to watch on the plane. You don't want to cry on the I know. plane. <laughs> and he said, you know, his mother used to say when tragedy struck to look for the helpers. And you know, what we say to our kids is, no, 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 that's not good enough anymore. You have to become the helpers. Right? We have to be you know, there's, all, there's this side and there's this side sometimes, and we just want to be the first responders. We want to pe- be the people that show up and say, here we are. What can we do? And there's something that I see that happens to people who just join in and just give a little bit and just do that next right thing instead of nothing. Whatever despair is, it's not there with them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a way of keeping hope alive. There's this language you've used, um, activism as self-care. Yeah. Which is has a lot of layers to it. Mm-hmm. And I also want to ask you, Abby, if that rings true for you, that language of activism as self-care. Yeah, I mean, Glennon and I talk a lot about this notion of despair. Sometimes she says it to our 10-year-old who has fallen down in a soccer game. Um, she'll say, no time for despair. <laughs> and I look at her, I'm like, What? What kind of language are you using? We're no, the, you the, said this is a soccer game, not a poetry reading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be nice about it.
After a short break, more with Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the Olympic gold medalist and World Cup soccer champion Abby Wambach, together with her wife, the blogger, author, and philanthropist Glennon Doyle. We spoke at the Women Moving Millions 2018 Power of Courage Summit in Seattle. I think I want to go to something that might seem unexpected in this room, because obviously we could talk about women, but I think one thing you've been talking about recently is... Um, raising a boy in this mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And I do think for so many of us, this realization you know, has come that it doesn't get better for women if we don't make better men. Um, and that certain girls, certain kinds of girls, the girls we're raising in this room, they're getting a lot of support. I mean, not all girls. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, would you tell the shower story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You guys, so I went into my, my when my daughter steals my shampoo all the time because I buy her cheap shampoo and I have nice shampoo. So, so she steals it. We have this war going on back and forth at the showers. So I went to her shower one day and she shares with my son and my other daughter. And I went to her shower and there, the girl, my girl's stuff is lined up on one side of the shower. My boy's stuff is lined up on the other. So, of course, my girl's bo- bottles of shampoo and are all pink and purple and slender and tall. I look over at my sons and they're all red, white, and blue and patriotic and very thick and big. And I thought, this is interesting right away, you know? So I pick up one of my son's body wash and you guys, I swear to you, it said this, three times stronger than any other soap, this will body slam Discuss, like it was just word after word after militant, dangerous, yeah. violent word till I was like, oh God, like are we preparing for war or cleaning ourselves, right? <laughs> so, and then I pick up the girl's bottle and it's just like wispy words that are all disconnected from each other, like elegant, light, um, delicate, breezy, like just like random things, I guess we're supposed to be, but like don't make any sentences or sense. And... I just thought, oh, this is so interesting. And then I thought, oh, we, before our kids even get out of the shower, we are already telling them um, how to lose most of their humanity and fit themselves into these little categories of masculinity or femininity, right? Before we even, they even get out of the shower. And it made me think, like, just something about seeing that on my boy's Bottles, you know, I was, I, you know, became bulimic when I was 10 years old. I've been fighting toxic messages of toxic femininity my entire life. And so when I had these little girls, you know, the second they were born, I was holding them just like, you can be anything, you know, be angry, go ahead, yell, rage, like, I love your anger, you know, whatever, like just trying to raise these fierce girls. Um, and it hit me like, I haven't been whispering that stuff to my little boy. I haven't been saying to him, you, you can be other things than angry. 
You can be vulnerable. Like you can cry. You can be soft. You can be gentle. You know, I think, oh God, like, of course, he's been learning just as many dehumanizing messages about what it means to be a boy in this world as my girls have, right? And we wonder why our little boys, you know, that they, it is just as dangerous to tell um, a little boy that he can only be angry as it is to tell a little girl that she can never be angry, right? And we wonder why, you know, every message we send to our boys is that in order to be a real man, you have to, you know, be really rich and you have to be famous and you have to conquer women, Um, And you have to be utterly invulnerable. And then we wonder why our men can only talk about sports and news and weather and nothing else, right? (laughs) The poor guys, I mean, we talk about it a lot. Like, it must be so lonely to be a man. Mm -hmm. And still, right, it's shocking that this is still, that there's still all these messages. And you've kind of walked into parenting a boy. Instant mom. It's been fun. (laughs) Yeah, instant mom. Instant mom. It's been fun. And, and has that and, been a revelation for you? Because you kind of walked into the middle of a boy's life, and he's a teenager, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's different. You know, when I first met Chase, he was uh, 13, maybe going on 14. Girls were a little bit younger, 12 and um, 8, maybe 11 and, and 8 years old. And I think that because he was a little bit older, a little bit more baked in terms of his uh, maturity, um, you kind of have to process with a boy differently on some level. Um, he wants to stay a little bit more to himself. You know, he's studying more for school. But we talk a ton about how we don't want him to feel dehumanized or living among, you know, a bunch of women. So, you know, there's times where this is a truth. Sometimes I found when I first got into the family, I found that Glennon was more apt to push the girls to do some of the house chores. Can't believe you're saying this. We're gonna have so many talks. <laughs> and I yeah. and I would be like, why don't we? Why doesn't Chase have to do the dishes? And she's like, you know what? I think you're right. So we've come down. We're like, Chase, you need to do the dishes. Even though you have homework to do, even like you have to do what has been quote unquote mm-hmm. historically a, f- a feminine job, a, a role of a of a woman in the house. Um, we want to make sure that that that's an equal shared chore for for Chase, so that he doesn't feel left out. Uh, I was yeah, stunned. I like that stunned at myself. I wonder if you would tell this story uh, that you told when you. I believe gave the commencement speech at Barnard. Is that right? <laughs> um, that when you ret- retired, and we never got to talk about what it's like to be retired when you're 38. It's okay. okay, another next time. Um, that your sponsor Gatorade surprised you at a meeting with the plan for your send-off commercial, and that the message was "Forget me," mm-hmm. which made you really happy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I went in there and I've done work with Gatorade for my whole career. Um, I've been a Gatorade athlete at, at the time for, um, I guess it was 15 years. And so when I walked into the offices and they sat me down and they showed me that they were going to make this this commercial that was going to be my commercial, my retirement commercial. Well, first of all, I was very like honored. You know, it, it feels like rarefied air to be uh the athlete for a campaign for, for Gatorade. And then the messaging that they wanted to get across to the consumer was this forget me idea. And for me, 
I know that sounds so bizarre because most athletes are like egomaniacs and crazy, you know, into themselves. Um, but I really feel deeply that the legacy I wanted to leave is making sure that I um, am leaving the sport better than I found it. And so often, you know, I hold the record for most goals scored um, for any person on the planet. Um, and of any gender. She's humble, She's humble yeah. you guys. And, and so people ask me all the time, there's this actually this woman from Canada, Christine Sinclair, that, yeah, she, um, she will likely break my record within the next 12 months. Um, and don't say anything, Glennon, because she's, she's like, no, I don't want her to break your record. But the reality and the truth is, and I really, drew, I do, I really do believe this, that especially women, we are here to keep pushing each other. And if somebody breaks my record, that means the game is better. That means the game is growing. That means other people are achieving greater, bigger heights than me. Um, and that is the kind of legacy that I can actually wrap my, my mind around. Um, and you can't find success unless you are willing to let it go when it's over. Nice. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Indeed, Christine Sinclair did break Abby Wambach's record after this conversation I had with her and her wife, Glennon Doyle. And I feel like coming from really different directions, the two of you use this really kindred language. I mean, you talk about champ that we need to champion each other. Yeah. And Glennon, you use the language of um, sistering each other. Yeah. Well, sistering is just the best word ever. Okay, so... I love this story. For, okay, so there's these... All right, you know carpentry? It's just boards and nails. Carpentry, right? Jesus is one? Okay. So, so there's this thing happens in carpentry, okay, where um, the, 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 main, um, the mainstay of, of building is a joist. And so every once in a while, the joist starts to weaken because there's a load on top that's too heavy. Okay, so when that happens, they say, okay, bring some extra boards, and they put um, an extra board to the right of the weakening joist. And if that doesn't make it strong enough, then they bring another board and they put it to the left of the weakened joist. And with an extra board to the right and an extra board to the left, the joist becomes strong enough to withhold any load. And do you know what that carpentry system is called? Sistering. I mean, it's like the guy carpenters were like, oh, we can't name this brothering. That's like too much intimacy there. So. <laughs> That looks more like what the ladies would do. But it's like just the most beautiful, to me, example of how women support each other, right? And, and, and for life, because sometimes the load on, our, on us just gets too heavy to carry by ourselves. And the mistake we make when that happens is we think that we've done something wrong. Right? We think we've made a mistake, we've gone wrong somewhere because it can't be this heavy. But if we never had to ask for help because we couldn't carry the load anymore, then we would miss out on the best part of life, which is just sistering and being sistered, right? Or champion each other. Go get the ball, Same score the goal. Yes. Same yes. Same thing. And um, I'm using the language of we need to accompany each other, mm. which is just another, you know, in this universe of words. But also realizing that it's, that's also tricky when we get for, like saying forget me and is very complex, and you also have a story about coaching the, your 10-year-old daughter's soccer team and somebody asking you, so you retired. What did you retire from? Yeah. <laughs> Halfway so, 
through the season, you guys. Halfway so, through the season. So it was halfway through the season, and we were warming up for a game, and um, I was laying off some some of the soccer balls so they could shoot. And I had just mentioned, like, oh, when I retired, and one of the girls said, oh, what did you retire from? And I said, soccer. She said, oh, who did you play for? And I said, I played for the United States of America. And she goes, oh, does that mean you know who Alex Morgan is? (laughs) So watch out for what you asked for, because they forgot me. Yeah. I love that, and I feel that this, um, especially in this moment we inhabit, this cross-generational friendship is so important that um, we've given our children a very complicated world, and they don't want to be told what to do, but they want to be accompanied. Mm-hmm. And, and it is also about us relinquishing power we have, and the knowledge, like the unbecoming. That's because that's beautiful and hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we tell our kids all the time. I mean, I think one of the amazing things about parenting is, you know, you want to teach your kids how to be human among humans. And so it makes you stop and consider how to be a human among humans, right? You have to like stop and think about it for the first time. And so one of the challenges I found so much in parenting is the same challenge that I find in my actual life, which is just letting them have their pain, right? Because like you said, you know, these things, we talk about them, but they're hard Mm -hmm. and we feel them. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the most important parts of my sobriety and in an activism and why I call activism self-care is just giving myself permission to feel the things. Right, And so Abby will tell you, I mean, I feel really, I allow myself to feel (laughs) a lot, right? (laughs) Like I allow feelings to take me to bed for 24 hours, quite often. Um, And I think that there there is some kind of crazy power in that. In my um, commitment to sobriety each day, just being committed to dealing with life on its own terms and my own feelings on its own terms and not rushing myself and distracting myself. And sometimes that means I go down hard. And then there's something that happens after that that's really beautiful 100% of the time. You know, so we say all the time with our kids, like it's, everything's a pattern. It's first the pain, then the waiting, then the rising. Over and over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. Pain, waiting, rising. Um, and whether, when we skip the pain, we just never get to this rising. And courage is born of that. And courage is born of that, that, just surrendering to the process. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, especially being a parent who's raised in the, in the, you know, we got this parenting memo that everything would be okay if we just never let anything bad ever happen to our children ever, right? As long as they gave us the babies and we're like, take her home and just never let being human happen to this child, right? <laughs> don't let anyone ever frown at her. Don't let her lose anything. Don't let a drop of rain fall into her head and then everything will be fine. Our parents got the memo, you know, just take her home and then go drink tab and smoke cigarettes and have bloody milk. <laughs> like you did throughout the pregnancy. Right, right. Yeah. So they got the right. awesome memo and ours <laughs> sucked. Yeah. Um, so... 
so anyway, that's what I figured out. It took me till my kids were 10 to realize that that parenting memo was complete BS, mm-hmm. right? And the re- when we don't let our kids fail and we don't let our kids feel, they don't learn how to become human. So one of my greatest challenges in my personal life and in my parenting is just to look at my kids and say, I'm not going to protect you from this. I'm going to let you fail here. I'm going to let you feel that. I'm going to let, yes, yes, life is that hard. It is that hard to be human, and I'm not going to grab that from you. Right? Like, we talk about, we're trying to raise these kids who don't think they have to be fire avoiders, right? Who don't have to constantly avoid the fires of their lives and of their relationships and of the world because they learn over and over again that they can walk through the fires because they're fireproof, right? That's what we learn when we keep showing up for hard things and we keep making it through, that we don't have to skip the hard things anymore because we somehow always survive and end up stronger. I want to ask you in closing, just each of you, um just for a moment to reflect on um, what makes you despair right now and where you're finding hope. Mm. You want me to go first? Well, <laughs> sure. I mean, no, I don't go care. ahead. I just didn't know if you're. No, I I think that what what makes me feel despair is just how lost it feels like parts of our government feel to me. Um, and what makes me feel hopeful is that I know that it won't last forever. Yeah, well, I mean, I think for me that the despair and the, the hope come in the exact same place, right? Like, I keep hearing all over the place, like, oh, my God, what's going on right now? You know, everybody's suddenly so racist, and everybody's so homophobic, and everybody's so... And, and okay, but like everyone's, all, the people have always been like that. <laughs> it's just, it's just that now we can see it, right? And people are talking about right, it. Right, now it's at the surface. So like when you ask people who are actually, have been affected by racism their whole life, when you ask people of color, they're not super surprised right now. Right. <laughs> right. Right. They're like, okay, so thanks everybody. Welcome. You just got to the party. <laughs> right? So... So that's why I think the despair and the hope are in the exact same place. Like we, and, and I think about this all the time because we give like destruction, we're too scared of it. We're too scared of apocalypse. Like who wants things to stay the same? Not me. You know, um, you know we get so scared of the ends of the world. You know, as women, the first, the first story I ever learned about God, okay, and being a woman was, okay, so everything was great, and God put you two people in a, uh, in a, in a garden. And um, no, no, first uh, one person in the garden, that was Adam, and then he gave birth to Eve, okay? So we're supposed to take that one on the chin first, right? Okay, all right, so men give birth to women, okay? Um, it's not what I've seen in my life, but got it, okay? And then everything was fine until the woman wanted something and then she went for it and then all hell broke loose and everything was terrible forever. Thank you for joining us. Go in peace. Um, And then we're like, why are women so confused about what they want? And food, you know, I don't know. She just wanted an apple. What if she wanted a freaking pizza? Like this is, and um, what I think about over and over again is, you know, What that story does, what every story we learn about being a woman does is make us start to fear what we desire, okay? Women have to fear what we desire. What women want is bad. What women want is scary, which makes us doubt ourselves over and over again. What do we want? We don't know what we want. We don't even know where we want to go to dinner. Who knows? We don't know, okay? But what I find 
talking to women all over the world is that what women want is so good that if women started to go for it, power structures would tumble, right? So doesn't it make sense that every single power structure would have to make women doubt what they desire? Mm. Because if women went for the des- what they desired, the world would crumble. That's good. And other worlds based on equality and justice and love and peace would have to be rebuilt in their place. Right? So what I want women to do is just go for the apple and let it burn. <laughs> Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach, thank you so much, and thank you for having us. <laughs> Glennon Doyle is creator of the online community Momastery and founder and president of Together Rising, a nonprofit for women and children in crisis. Her books include Untamed and Love Warrior. She hosts the podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. Abby Wambach is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, FIFA Women's World Cup champion, and six-time winner of the U.S. Soccer Athlete of the Year Award. She's written two books, Wolfpack and Forward, a memoir. And she's host of Abby's Places on ESPN+. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.